Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to find Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. In the 30 preceding chapters and in the following chapters, I cannot say what I'm about to say to you. This is, to me, by far, the greatest chapter in the book of Jeremiah. Now, it doesn't mean that chapters 32 through the end of the book are to be ignored, and they will bless us greatly as we walk through them. But it is very seldom that I get the opportunity to come to you and tell you in advance, this is one of the most significant and important passages in all of the Old Testament. Let me tell you how important this passage is. This passage is so important that this is the passage that names the New Testament. In fact, it is from Jeremiah chapter 31 that we get the name of the New Testament. What's the name of the New Testament? The New Testament. And where do we get that from? Jeremiah chapter 31. In fact, it's not just specifically in the entire chapter. It is in chapter 31 beginning in verse 31. For those of you who weren't with us last week, we began a new sermon series through chapters 31 through 33 called Restoration. The English word for the definition of restoration goes something like this. The action of returning something to a former owner, place, or condition. To restore it. You may remember last week I talked with you about how we seem, seem to be fascinated with restoration, of seeing things restored and refurbished. And I remember telling you that often we talk about them in terms of trying to sell them as new, gently used, refurbished. The automobile industry came up a few years ago. You don't buy a used car anymore. You buy a pre-owned car. Do you know what a pre-owned car is? A used car. A pre-owned car, low miles, late model. What's an early model? Some of you are like, preacher, I'm an early model. <laughs> a late model, like new, as good as new. And, and I'll be honest with you, all those are useful. I've owned many used vehicles in my life. I've bought many things secondhand. I like Facebook Marketplace. I have met many rednecks in gas station parking lots and bought some great stuff for my outdoor adventures via the connectivity of Facebook Messenger and Marketplace. But nothing beats new. My mother and father were up for the weekend, and my mother and I were setting out by a smoker yesterday as I was working on some ribs and some hot wings for the ball game. Everybody's a winner today. Everybody came in happy for the ball game. And my mother looked at me out of the blue, and she said, DJ, do not buy a crock pot from a thrift store. You know they cook meth in those things. <laughs> I said, wait, what? I said, Mom, what, what would make you think, I, you got a problem against thrift stores? I bought this. I said, I don't have a problem against thrift stores. I like going through thrift stores when I've got time. In fact, I like to bounce in pawn shops. You never know what you may find in a pawn shop or a thrift store. I remember driving down the road once with my wife. We were on a date, and she said she'd never been in a pawn shop. I almost broke it off right there. <laughs> never been in a pawn shop? Come on, man. It's like, Mom, I'm not going to buy a used uh, crock pot. I, I just don't think I'd buy that from a from a pump. What's a new one? $29? $39? I don't know about it. Well, don't, because they cook meth in them. That's what my friend told me. 
There's nothing better than new. <laughs> nothing better than new. You bought a new car? There's a gap between the time you pick it up and you make the first payment that you're happy about buying it. That's the only time. <laughs> it just smells great, doesn't it? It just smells good. In fact, they sell air freshener that's supposed to make your car smell new. It does not. It does not. It just smells so good. There's something about new. The book of Consolation, which is a book of prophecies within the book of Jeremiah, it spans from chapters 30 through verse 33, chapters 33 rather, is a portion of the book where Isaiah and Jeremiah specifically are taken above the plight of their people and Jeremiah is allowed to see the full and total restoration of God that God has intended for his people. Now, the fascinating thing about that is that much of it is about restoration. But in chapter 31, breaking through the discussion of restoration is this idea of new. Look what it says in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Nobody does new like God. Nobody does new like God. What's so new about this covenant? Well, the most powerful two words in the preceding verses I just read are the two simple words that translate from the Hebrew to English, I will. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to take this on my own, and I'm going to do what mankind could never do. In fact, if you look at your passage again, notice verse 31, I will. Verse 33, I will. Second phrase of verse 33, I will. Third phrase of verse 33, I will. Verse 35, I will. Second phrase of verse 35, I will. This is really the wills of God. This is what God says he's going to do. And quite honestly, it's because he's the only one who can do what he's going to do. My prayer is that when I finish in just a few moments, that your heart will be so full of worship for the wills of God. Not W-H-E-E-L-S. I'm talking about the wills, W-I-L-L-S. We often talk about knowing the will of God, seeking the will of God, wondering what the will of God is. Who can search the heart and the mind of God? But here, 
perhaps like nowhere else, especially in the book of Jeremiah, does he lay out, this is my will. I will do this five and six times. I will, I will, I will, I will. And what will he do in this new covenant? What's so new about it? What does he offer? Let me share that with you briefly. First, he offers a new promise. Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, if he had just said where I will make a covenant, we would think it would be the first covenant. But the idea of the word new means there was an old. You don't know what new is until you've had old. If something's never been in your life, you receive a car. But if you've always had used cars, when you get a new car, it's not a car, it's a new car. Now, we know that this really carries forth the idea that God has been pursuing relationship with man since creation. In fact, that was the sole purpose of creation. We do not teach, nor do we believe, that God created in loneliness or incompleteness. The Lord never bears witness in Scripture that he created us because he needed us or that he was lonely. No, no, no. Creation is a display of his glory, and in the display of his glory, his attribute of love and grace and mercy comes out and is most resilient and most brilliant in, his, in its imagery when we recognize that God created us for a relationship with him. And we see this in the garden, Adam and Eve. The Lord would walk with them in the cool of the evening. And yet the scripture says that sin broke that. And when sin broke that, God began the pursuit of mankind. The initial covenant, the old covenant, was established in the book of Genesis in several places. But in Genesis 17, 7, this is what God tells Abraham. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God establishes a covenant with Abraham. Now, there's many, many significant men and women in the Old Testament, but there are some names that bubble to the top. Of course, Adam and Eve, and then Abraham, and then we have the figure of Joseph, and then, of course, Moses. The covenant that God made with Abraham is formalized when God renewed it or recelebrated it with Moses in the book of Exodus. In fact, in Exodus Chapter 19, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God goes on to tell Moses and the children of Israel, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This happens right after God is preparing to give Moses on Mount Sinai the law. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. So Abraham gets the covenant. Moses formalizes the covenant. And then we th see throughout Scripture that while God never changed, in fact, let me show you in this one chapter. If you have your Bible open to Jeremiah 31, whether you're looking at an app or a printed copy, look back at the very beginning of the chapter. The very beginning of chapter 31 Listen to what the, the word says in verse 2. 
Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. So God is beckoning back when he saved the children of Israel in the wilderness. And then look what verse 3 says. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So the problem with the old covenant is never God. And ultimately, when man would break the relationship agreement that God had entered in, God would always, in his grace, allow man a chance to renew. A quick list of the times in the Old Testament the covenant was renewed will reveal that Moses did it in Exodus 34. We hadn't even gotten out of the book where Moses agreed to the covenant that he's having to renew the covenant. Joshua renewed the covenant between God and people in Jeremiah 23 and, or Joshua 23 and Joshua 24. 1 Samuel records Samuel renewing the covenant. Hezekiah renewed the covenant. King Josiah renewed the covenant when the law of God was found among the rubble when they were remodeling the temple. And so we see God entering into covenant with man. You be my people, I'll be your God. You obey my word, I will honor you, and I will bless you. You deal openly with your sin and come to me, and I will forgive you. You claim your sin through the sacrificial rites that I have given you through the sacrifice of animals, through the offering of fruit. I will forgive you of your sin. And so we see this covenant in the Old Testament over and over again. God was faithful, man was unfaithful. God was faithful, man was unfaithful. Now drop that in the context of the book of Jeremiah. If you've been in this study with me, you know that the book of Jeremiah is ultimately a book of divine announcement of coming judgment. God has not changed his mind. Israel is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem will be laid bare by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586. Most people believe these chapters, chapter 30, 31, 32, and 33, happen just before that where Jeremiah knows that doom is coming in the temporary, that today is not going to be a day of victory and restoration, but that even in the divine justice of God, God is clearing the way for a new covenant, something that man cannot mess up because God said, I'm going to do it. I will, I will, I will, I will. This is a new promise. Just a word of application there. How much more gracious can he be? He owed Israel nothing. He had given them everything. And time and time again, though he had remained faithful, using the metaphor of marriage as a loving husband, they had been unfaithful as a faithless spouse. In fact, in chapter 31, what does the Scripture say? Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then God says, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So God said, This one failed. It did not fail because I failed. I took them by the hand. In fact, one of the overarching pictures of the Old Testament is that the Old Testament shows us that the relationship between God and humanity is very much like the relationship of the father with the prodigal son. Notice the metaphor of the children. 
God says, I found them, and I took them by the hand, and I led them out of the wilderness. But they kept pulling away, and I would chase them down and bring them back. Sometimes I would discipline them. Sometimes I would chastise them, but only to grasp them up like a parent who's holding a child, who may comfort a child and discipline a child in the same way. You know what I'm talking about. When your child is run away from you in a public place or your child darts toward a busy highway or your child doesn't look both ways in a parking lot, you snatch them up and then you quickly hug them and say, the reason I yelled at you, the reason I raised my voice, the reason I popped your leg is because I love you and I don't want anything bad to happen to you. And God says, I took you by the hand and I led you and you kept pulling away and you kept pulling away and you kept pulling away. If anything, the old covenant proved that man, and when I say man, I mean mankind, men and women, are incapable of being faithful to God without the power of God in us, which is why the new covenant is about God's volition. God's initiative, God's power, God's spirit, and ultimately God's son. I will, I will, I will, I will give you a new promise. Secondly, to be a new person. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with you, the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Notice the difference. How was the old covenant written? On tablets of stone. You all remember those pictures from Sunday school? If you grew up in Sunday school as I did, many of you did. There would be Moses there on Mount Sinai. There would be thunder and lightning in the background because the Shekinah glory shook the earth. And Moses would be holding two tablets of stone. And I remember as a child memorizing the Ten Commandments that were written on that stone. And of course, as God inscribed it on the stone, there is symbolism of rock-solid truth, permanence, eternal And from the initial law, the Ten Commandments, grows out all of the law in Deuteronomy and all of the law in Leviticus and all of the way that God's law manifests itself in the people of God. And so the idea being that old covenant, God wrote it on stone and showed it to men, and man could not keep it. So God said, I'm going to write it on your heart. Uh, This week I was driving to work and I was listening to the congressional testimony of General Mark Miley. He appeared before Congress to testify as to why the Afghanistan evacuation went so poorly. We all understand how politicized this issue is. I'm not here this morning to speak to that, but he made a comment that is fascinating. He was asked directly, he was asked directly, why do you think the Afghanistan army, why do you think the Afghanistan army folded so quickly to the Taliban the moment our troops were moved out? This was his response. He said to Congress, We can count the trucks and the guns and the units and all that, but we can't measure a human heart from a machine. 
His point is, and he was being critical of himself, his point is the more personnel we pull from the day-to-day grind of the Afghani army's responsibility, the more out of touch we became with the condition and the will of those men. And we have no machine that can measure inside of a man's heart whether or not he will stand up against tyranny and terrorism. We simply cannot do that. And this was my thought. He's exactly right. Only God can measure the heart of a woman. Only God can measure the heart of a man. And don't you think it's interesting that this new covenant, God is saying, I'm not dealing with tablets of stone anymore. This new covenant won't be about a temple built to certain dimensions. This new covenant won't be about which lamb or which dove or which basket of fruit is brought to the temple. This new covenant is going to be dealing with the hearts of people. And one of the things we find in this very chapter is the idea of a truly broken people before the Lord. In fact, in chapter 31, look at verse 18. In verse 18, we see this fleshed out. He says, I have heard Ephraim, that's a synonym for Judah. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. Now, what does that mean? Let me tell you what that means. It's the picture of a man before God who says, God's right. I was wrong. God disciplined me. And when I turned away from God and realized it, it bothered me. There it is. I just lived it out right in front of you. It bothered me. You ever had to slap your own wrist? I don't know about you, but I've had to reach into my mouth and pull my foot out so many times in my life. We all understand what it means to feel truly regret for something that we've done, something that we thought, something that we've said. And this is the picture in verse 19. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. So one of the pictures God is painting here is that in the new covenant, under this type of restoration, a change is going to happen in a woman's life. A change is going to happen in a man's life. And it's not going to be from the outside in. It's going to be from the inside out. And and the will and the word of God is going to be placed within them. And, of course, we know exactly what that change is. Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not in ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on the tablets of stone. You don't think Paul knew about Jeremiah? Not on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of a human of human heart. So Paul is saying, when I meet saved people, they are the covenant. It's no longer Moses walking down from Mount Sinai. It is a living, breathing person with the word of Christ in their life Because the Spirit of Christ lives in them. In fact, a little bit later in this same chapter, when Paul is talking about ministry, he says, 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Paul's saying, it's not about me. I'm not special. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a what? New covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And therein lies the two purposes of the old covenant. What did the law of God do? The law of God does two things. The law of God shows the absolute beauty, splendor, glory, and perfection of God. It shows that he does not compromise in his holiness, in the radiance of his perfection. The law holds the standard way up here. And it also reveals that on my very best day, that same letter of the law that displays the greatness of God condemns me because by the letter of the law, I never measure up. This is where Paul had spent his whole life trying to keep the letter of the law. And then he met the one who fulfilled the law. And when he had his encounter with Christ, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he came to faith in Jesus. The Spirit of God came to live in him. And he says, the law kills, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the gospel. The gospel is not about aligning your life with a set of rules or commands or expectations. The gospel is an encounter with a living, breathing Savior through faith and repentance, through turning to him, through casting your lot upon him, through bowing before him and claiming nothing of your own. And in his loving grace, the Spirit of God responds to the faith of God in you. And he comes to live in you. You are filled with his spirit, cleansed by his blood. And that forgiven state creates within you an unbelievable strength and power, not of your own, to honor the Lord. It does not mean that in the new covenant you cannot struggle, you cannot stray, you cannot sin. In fact, that's not what it means at all. But it does mean that when someone is truly in the new covenant, when they're truly born again, the law of God is written on their heart. It lives within them. And so coming with it is desire. Think about this. Write this down. Text it. Tweet it. Burn it in your mind. One of the greatest indicators of true salvation is desire. It's desire. It's not always performance. Someone who has Christ in them has a desire to honor the Lord. There is a desire there. And when they stray, when they sin, the weight of conviction is made sharp because their behavior in the moment of sin, whatever it be, something they said, something they thought, something they did, does not match the true desires of of their heart. And this is why there are many people who know about the God of the new covenant but don't know Christ. And not knowing Christ is often an exhausting place to be when someone is attempting to live a Christian life. I've often said the most miserable people in the world are people who are trying to honor the Lord without the Lord they're trying to honor living in them. You cannot 
do it. You must be made a new person. And then when you're made a new person, <laughs> the new promise, which creates new persons, makes a whole new people. Look what happens in verse 33. I love this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. Now, that there, there is, that's a lot of theirs. That there, there is plural. And they shall be my people. Now, what's that look like? We've been hearing that through the whole chapter. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is a reoccurring theme. But what does it actually look like to be the people of God and for God to look down and say, these are my people, and for that people to look up and say, he is our God. Well, the next verse gives us the description. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. So there's this idea that a group of people will exist under the new covenant that are no longer in need of having other people tell them to know the Lord. Now, you could never use this verse to defend not teaching. In fact, you can leave right now if we think that the Bible teaches once you have a relationship with Christ, you don't need teaching. Because that's what I'm called to do. In fact, one of the qualifications of a pastor, a preaching pastor, a teaching elder in the New Testament, is that he is able to teach. We all need teachers in our life, and we need to learn. And the Scriptures are pregnant with verses talking about growing in the knowledge of our faith, growing in the wisdom of God. He's not talking here about learning principles we should live by truths to encourage us, lessons from God's Word. No, no, no. He's using relational language. He's saying, under the new covenant, when I look at my people, I will be looking at a people that no longer have to tell each other to know the Lord. Why? Because if you are in the new covenant, the prerequisite for being in the room is that you know the Lord. So if someone comes to me and they're discouraged, I could say, hey, I want to just remind you to trust the Lord in this. That's a good word. If I come to you and I'm hurting, maybe I've failed myself, and I can't forgive myself, and you say, hey, Pastor, listen, you need to remember that God has forgiven you and that you must forgive yourself. That's a good word. If you come to me and you're confused about the next step in your life, you don't know what God would have you do, I would say, listen, you need to ask God for more wisdom and discernment. And I would often say, you also need to look into your life at anything that would stop you from discerning the will of God. Most of the time, it's not a question of God making his will known. It's a question of whether or not we can discern his will because we're not walking with him the way that we should. Those are all good words. But let me tell you what you'd never have to tell me. You don't ever have to say, DJ, you need to get more saved. If you're born again, if you're a Christian, and that's affirmed by your life, I would never look at you and say, you need to get more saved. You can't get more saved. It's like trying to get more married. You can fall in love with a woman, you marry more, but you can't get more married. You don't get more pregnant. You can get greater pregnant, 
but you don't get more pregnant. I can't be more of what God has already declared me to be. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, I foresee a day when under a new covenant, there'll be no evangelism. Everybody will know the Lord. There are only two places where everybody knows the Lord. One is heaven, and two are heaven citizens that have not yet been called home, the church. I'm not talking about the church gathered corporately because we have people who come into our church all the time in our services that are investigating Christ, that may think they're saved and they're not saved. But when you will gather the pure church, people who are truly saved, nobody has to get re-saved because God doesn't give half of himself away. We are who we are because of him. We are a new people. And then that leads, and this may be my favorite part, New covenant means a new promise, to be a new person in a new people with a new past. I've always been told you can't change the past. Well, now, in the pure sense of the word, that's true. We have no ability to change the past. Now, we know that societies can change how they view the past. Have you read the headlines lately? There's all kinds of individuals trying to reinterpret history. You can reinterpret what you think happened, but you can't change what happened. Yet I was reminded of Marty McFly. You remember Marty? 1985. I was eight years old when this movie came out. 1985. I don't remember watching it until I got a little bit older. But back to the future, Michael J. Fox was Marty McFly. Through an amazing series of events, he ends up in the time machine and goes back in time to his same hometown when his what would-be parents were his age. He's thrust into a situation he's trying to figure out, and of all things, his high school version of his mother has a crush on him. This is not good. I, I don't know much about sociology or biology, but if your mom and your dad don't get together, you don't get here. All of a sudden, he realizes he's got to make his mama fall for his daddy. His daddy is a nerd with a capital N, nerd, pocket protector nerd. His mother is infatuated with him because he's new. And so for the rest of the movie, his future's changing because he's impacted his past. So he has to change his past so he can exist in his future. Look what happens in this new covenant. Verse 35. The Bible says, 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, here it comes. Watch this. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God has the ability to do what we cannot do. He says, when I look upon them in this new covenant, 
When I fully restore them to be my people and I write my law in their heart and I give them my spirit through the shed blood of my son, this is all about Christ. He's saying, when I do that, then I'm going to change the legacy of their past. And you know, you think about it. Anytime the enemy tries to condemn me about my past, he's going to slam right into Calvary. Anytime he wants to bring up a list of things I have done that are clear violations of the law of God as given by the servant of God on the mountain of God known as Mount Sinai, written in the stones of tablet. Anytime the enemy wants to hold those up as the great prosecutor of the people of God, the scripture says he slams right into Jesus. And the blood of Christ has washed that away. This is why when we read a passage like this, we're reminded of 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. My past has been redefined by the new covenant. The greatest New Testament treatment of the new covenant is Hebrews chapter 8, and Hebrews chapter 9. After hearing this sermon this morning, I encourage you to read Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9 in your devotions this week. In Hebrews chapter 9, this is what the Scripture says. It's so powerful. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, if the Old Testament work, the writer says, how much more? Church family, say that with me. How much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And that is what's new about a new covenant. He didn't change my past. Redefined it and gave me a hope. I don't know what it's going to be like when I meet the Lord. I hope it's a few years from now. Ready to go today, our sister church, Poplar Springs Baptist Church, is heartbroken this morning because their pastor is very, very, very ill with COVID. The congregation and his family have not given, not been given any medical hope apart from a miracle that this pastor won't meet the Lord soon. Our church is in communication with that church, and we will do anything in our power to help them during this difficult time. I was texting back and forth with their associate pastor, who is a friend of mine, and I said about their pastor, his name is Dale Roach. He is a good and godly man. I said, no matter what happens in Dale's life, either way he wins, my heart is aching for his family and his church. I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know when it's going to take place. But based on this passage, I'm reminded of those I wills. Where God said through Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant. I will put my words in his heart. I will write them in his mind. I will forgive. And I will remember no more. You know what I'm imagining in my mind? When I stand before him and I see him. I have a feeling there will be a struggle to find the words to express the adoration of just being in the presence of the one so worthy of heaven 
who is welcoming the one so unworthy. And after studying this week, I, I wonder if I might be thinking about those I wills. And I could see myself saying, he did. He did. He did. He did. He did. Some sermons are rich with application. This one, it ought to just produce adoration. He did. He did. He did. He did.